This is the 966 episode 93. Had to think about it for a second there with a little pause, Richard. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I love you know some variation of threes. You know, <laughs> you're, uh, you're you're like Pierce. He holds up my son holds up two threes and says three, and I say six, <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> this is three. <laughs> my, my brain's not far enough along for this. Dad. <laughs> but he is proud to be at three. We are proud to be at ninety three. Richard, and we've got an awesome one this week. We're going to be speaking in a few moments with Dana Alajlani, who is head of public affairs for the GCC at Sanofi, is also with the American Chamber of Commerce in Saudi Arabia, AmCham KSA. And it's a great, really a great conversation with Dana. Um, and we'll be getting to that in just a few moments. Just just awesome. I love Dana's spirit. But well, I mean, what's really impressive about her is her 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 overwhelming competence, you know, when you speak with her, she 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 knows her stuff. She has good insights. She's uh she's she's just a, it's a really great conversation. It's wonderful to connect with her, and I think this was a good this you know as we as the nine six six tries to get a handle on things in Saudi Arabia, um and let's say women in business or entrepreneurs that sort of thing you know you you can't get a you can't get the whole picture in one episode. I love this episode because it adds us and it expands the picture on terms of, of, of women in the workforce in Saudi Arabia. And it adds to it that, you know, as we're trying to contribute to the conversation. So it's just a great discussion and just a lot of fun to be with Dana. Yes, I could not agree more, Richard. And we've uh, also got a great episode as well surrounding that conversation. We're going to be talking in a little bit about uh, following up to last week's conversation, which did very well as well with Professor Simon Chadwick on sports washing and Saudi Arabia's sporting ambitions. And really, it, we take a, a couple of different turns in there about what's going on in the geopolitical economy of sporting, which is his expertise. And uh, so we will be talking a little bit more about some new updates on that with a recent report in the Financial Times. We're going to get to Yella as well. Um, and Richard, uh, last week, this this last week was, as you know, a little weird because we had the 4th of July holiday on what, obviously <laughs> the 4th, but it was a Tuesday, which is kind of a it was not, not a cool day to have a holiday like that just right yeah. in the middle of the week. So it sort of made that holiday weekend for us a little weird. So we see and have seen all of the feedback that you guys have sent us, but I, at least I am a little slow on responding to some of it. But we really appreciate it. And a lot of people love that conversation with Professor Simon Chadwick. So um, thank you for that. This one, Richard from Trimex on YouTube. Uh, nice to cover the health aspect of their strategy, which uh, he's talking about the sports investing strategy. The Saudis are facing a regionally prevalent epidemic of non-transmissible illnesses that require lifestyle adaptations to tackle effectively. I think they hiked a tax on sugar products a while ago which I think is true, actually, Richard, that has decreased consumption of sweets by a certain percentage, but I can't find the source, he said. Um, anecdotally, I don't know if that's true, because every time I go over there, it's just sweets on sweets and so many dates that I can't believe I'm not twice my current size. Trimax also <laughs> noted, and I actually meant we talked about this right before we jumped on, Richard, did you guys change the format? I kind of miss the old one plus hour long unedited videos that were nice to listen to. Yeah, uh, so um, just a little bit of... Uh, sausage making part of the sausage factory you can go into the the sausage factory floor 
um, the full episodes when they exceed a certain limit, about two hours uh, sometimes is with an hour long show, an hour long interview rather, and then a show on either side, they get to be very large videos. And so they're very hard to upload to YouTube. So some weeks we don't have the full episode on YouTube, just segments. I think this week we will. Uh, so sorry about that, Trimax. You can listen to them, though, on our audio channel, our audio channels, I should say, Richard, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, the 966 will be there. So if you want that full, sweet summer listen for the 966, <laughs> uh, tune in there. Yeah, you know, we should do a survey. We've talked internally about, so this is, so we do the episode, capture the episode with our guests, try to do it earlier in the week. And it has to be uh, uh, technical, as I say, in an improper term, but you know, it's produced. And as you say, Lucian, sometimes with the big ones, uh, the term is render. It takes forever to render it after you put it in. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, and so we'll, we're, and we like to, we like to publish it along with our Sustig review on Fridays. And there's times where they go and just, you know, it's like watching a, a you know, a, a, a watch clock, you know, never moves. And that's how it happens with the render is Lucian's trying to get this thing in and you're eight hours in, 10 hours in, 12 hours in on the render. <laughs> and you're like, will this ever happen? So the question is, we have discussed uh, publishing episodes on Mondays. And it occurred to me, Lucian, that would at least give the weekend for for these really the, these monster ones to render. That's true. We did also talk about the possible downside of that, Richard, which is that because things are happening so quickly in it's Saudi true. Arabia these days, it's true. not like the old days. Um, in two to three days, some of the stuff might get stale, or there may be some huge mega yeah. announcement, or something might change. So, just well, is very common. Yeah, that's a great point. So, sausage making is we do the segments separately. So yes. we'll, you know, we'll try and capture the uh, the guests Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We usually do our segments Thursday. So you're exactly right. So when it comes out on Friday, it's fresh. Yes. If so you may notice that we Monday, change outfits. Yeah. <laughs> or, I try or, and keep the same one on. Yeah, me too. I, I wear the same thing every time. So you know, it's, it's actually the only outfit I have. It's just one white shirt. <laughs> yours just got. Yours just got. You know. Kid stains. Kid stains. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, I made the mistake, Richard, of wearing. Um, I really like wearing white pants because um, you can only do it a certain time of year in the U.S. Really, I mean, you know, formally, properly. I love white pants, and um, I went through two pairs this weekend. All the barbecues and stuff with my kids just coming up and saying, "Hey, Daddy," and I just Dad. wiping their face on my pants, and I'm like, "Oh, cool." Um, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and that's the beauty of being a dad. It's worth it. You it's know? so worth it. Yeah, so uh, worth it. Uh, Richard, one more comment uh, from Abu Saud four five five four on YouTube. Very good job, gentlemen. What an interesting guest. Mashallah. I have one small suggestion, if I may. If there is an Arabic subtitle for your episodes, I guess that will increase the viewers. A lot of Saudis don't know English very well um, and will very much enjoy the huge efforts you guys do. Thank you so much. So, yeah, we're also working on this, Richard. This has been in the cards for a while. This is also another technical challenge with many parts. Uh, it's something that we aspire to have because we know that will dramatically increase our audience size. We should note that our audience is pretty much split right down the middle between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, maybe two or three more points, 44 to 41 type thing between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and then around the rest of the world, 50 countries, Richard. So, um, yeah, I mean, we do see that as a way 
forward for us, undoubtedly. Um, we'll get there. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's uh, Lucia and I have a endless list. Yeah, endless of, of things we want to do with the show and with our overarching program and the whole organization, and and we're trying to work our way to it, uh, budget wise and and uh, sort of um, bandwidth wise. This is up there. We'd love to get this up because we recognize, same as you, that it's an important, uh, it'd be an important service and it would make our product better. So yeah, we're absolutely all in with you on that. And and Richard, I think you would agree, this is sort of a good problem to have, which is we have many areas in which we can grow that we've identified. Um, that's way better than having the opposite problem of we don't know how to grow the show. This show has grown so quickly, I think, beyond both of our expectations, well beyond our expectations. So we really appreciate everybody tuning in and all this feedback and comments, good and bad. We, we love hearing it all. Um, and we're just we're excited that this has taken off. I like how you said that, because my wife, when she acknowledges the many areas in which I need to grow, doesn't think it's a good problem but <laughs> in the context of the 966 i agree 100 <laughs> percent. richard let's get to it what is your one big thing this my week? one big thing well we talk about vision 2030 as you know uh and it infuses pretty much everything we you know, as we assess Saudi Arabia and, and we know from firsthand experience, we know from our guests. And I think in particular, people like Mark Thompson, uh, you know, King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies, who, who studies the socioeconomic trends in Saudi Arabia. We know from talking with young entrepreneurs like uh, Renan Al-Jeffrey or Sarah Bin Laden or, or anybody, and they talk about the paradigm shifting impact of vision 2030 as it pertains to them and how it has changed, you know, how they look at things, what they think is possible, uh, how they approach almost everything they do in their lives. And, and so we know there's a ground truth to it, that things are really different in Saudi Arabia. It's always interesting to find when people put uh, some analysis to it and try and get some data points. And so uh, the, the, the reason is this, is I have referenced in the past, and uh, we've talked about it, Lucian, this group called Karma, C-A-R-M-A. It's a global media intelligence provider. About a year and a half ago or so, they did a, uh, they analyzed the impact of Vision 2030 on uh, media perceptions of Saudi Arabia. So they've come out with an updated one, which is great. And uh, I read an article about it in Campaign Middle East. Campaign Middle East covers consultancies and a lot of things like that, PR firms. Um, and I've already communicated with uh, Rowan Hashem, who's head of insights for Mina at Karma, and I'm hoping she'll come on the show. But in the interim, I wanted to share with what they some things that they had found because it underpins. Uh, sort of what we talk about, and I'm not going to say it's anecdotal because our understanding is more than anecdotal. It's firsthand experience, and it's you know it's on the ground research. So I guess, but but this is data analysis, and the way they do it, Karma, is they conduct they conducted a comprehensive research analysis of media coverage across 33 major markets and over 2,400 major international titles in. Uh, traditional digital and broadcast media. And the focus of the research was to understand the impact of Vision 2030, specifically on Saudi's reputation. 
also to examine how the country was perceived in regional international top tier media. So it's a milieu in which we live because we're, we're, we're sort of curating from media and, and that sort of thing. So it's interesting what they found. Uh, the research, and this is some of the things they pull out, it showcased a 4% increase in positivity and a 12% decrease in negativity between the first and last quarter of 2022. Um, vision, and this is a term of art, I guess, in the business, uh, Vision 2030 share of voice grew by 13% by the end of 2022. I guess share of voice is a measure of the market that your brand owns compared to your competitors. Um, I'm not sure who the competitor is in this in this thing in this situation, but Vision 2030's share of voice is growing. Um, one of the things this Karma report sort of points out is social topics witnessed a surge of 10% in coverage. Economic news declined by 12%. In the end, this is between the first and last quarter of 2022 last year, according to Karma. Uh, this evolving media focus indicated a growing recognition of the so societal impact of Vision 2030, something we talk about all the time. Um, as the kingdom's efforts to drive social development resonated with both regional and international audiences. So that's interesting that, you know, basically they're saying that the, the, the impetus, the social impetus for Vision 2030 is being more widely understood and at least internalized by regional and international audiences. So the research, commerce research, revealed key positive drivers. There are six of them, and I'll follow it up with key negative drivers. So the six that they pointed out is a booming economy, which we're familiar with. Last year, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia was the fastest growing G20 economy. Thriving tourism and entertainment industries, which we, we cover and we're well aware. Of, and I want to point out, this wasn't even a conversation five years ago. Um building stronger global ties. And this would be things like uh, Saudi Arabia's active role in peace negotiations with Yemen, growing cooperations with several nations such as China and South Korea. These were all heavily discussed in the media. Uh, dominating the global oil market. Obviously, that's well known. Transforming the sports landscape. Again, not part of the discussion five years ago. Um, and something we cover in depth here at, at the 966. Number six, promoting rich cultural heritage. Again, this is something we talk about, and I think it's really fascinating because a big con component of Vision 2030 is taking the existing cultural heritage and putting it forward. Um, you know, and this is, you know, you know, arts events, festivals, any number of things. Um, so those are the, the, the positive six. Negative drivers that in, in karma's research gained traction and warranted attention. One, accusation of sports washing, the flip side of that, you know, higher profile in sports. Two, deepening rift in U.S.-Saudi relations, something we covered deeply here and extensively. Three, you know, the flip side of dominance in oil is backlash over oil cuts. Four, uh, scrutiny of ambitious sustainability goals. This is interesting. This is skepticism raised by top-tier outlets regarding Saudi Arabia's ability to fulfill its green commitments. Particularly interesting with respect to the NEON project. So that's something you need to put in your mental register if you're Saudi Arabia, is there's, there's doubts about their sustainability claims. Uh, and this is, this is five. This is really interesting because you, this is not something I would have picked. Debate sparks by Jeddah demolitions. So, you know, we've talked about Jetta Central and it's, you know, there's there's a revitalization going on in a lot of Saudi cities. And 
in in that case in Saudi Arabia, I think it was five or seven neighborhoods that they've cleared out because they're trying to revitalize and re redesign the, the the city in that area. So that's comes across as a negative in Karma's research. And uh, six experts weighing in on the feasibility of Saudi mega, pro mega product projects. Um, and uh, the kingdom's ability to deliver on its mega projects came under scrutiny by experts and journalists. Neom, in particular, raised skepticism regarding feasibility and funding challenges. Um, so, in closing, uh, the article ends the kingdom's ability to overcome political challenges, the prominence of social themes amidst geopolitical unrest, the far-reaching influence of Vision 2030, and the emergence of sports and tourism as key discussion topics all underscored Saudi Arabia's position as a crucial regional and international player. All right. So there it is. I mean, I, I liked it because, it, as I said, it, you know, it's some, it based on some analysis and some comprehensive research. I hope we can get Rowan on to talk about it more in depth, uh, but I, really interesting. And in, in some ways, it corroborates what we're seeing. In other ways, there's a couple surprises. So all in all, a, a worthwhile read. Richard, this type of stuff, these types of reports are enormously valuable, like you noted, in just piecing together a broader understanding of Saudi Arabia. Obviously, these are just media trends and, and what is being portrayed in the media. It isn't a full survey of every human living being who answered direct questions, but it is, it shows how perceptions have changed. And I think this is great. And one thing that I really want to note that jumped out to me when you started uh, discussing this and when you shared this uh, last night and we sort of like looked at it was the negatives. I mean, if you jump right to the study highlighting some negative drivers that gained traction and warranted attention, and, and I, that's important wording because it says negative drivers that gain traction. So these are negative issues that are starting to become more and more common. But if you look at that list, like that list is, if they did this five or six years ago and they didn't, but if they did, think about what would be on that list and what isn't on it today. Not 9-11, not Jamal Khashoggi's murder, not education or what they teach in schools, not financing Islamic buildings abroad that could become hotbeds of radicalization, not financing terrorism through charities, not women's rights in Saudi Arabia. I feel like those are the things you sort of hear casually. I mean, that's totally anecdotally because it's just my circle or like people that I talk to randomly. But those are those were the issues two, three, four years ago, and then also 10, 12, 14 years ago. To have this list have none of those on it is incredible. Oil cuts, uh, U.S.-Saudi rift in relations, sports washing, you know, ability to fill green commitments. Just we're talking about a new set of challenges, and there are always going to be that set of challenges in five years or 10 years, no matter how successful Vision 2030 is or how successful the reforms are. You're going to have another list of criticisms for Saudi Arabia. There are the way things are going right now, they'll probably be different than this list. But that's that's amazing to me. I think it's a great point. I think that's an excellent point. And, it, and it's a sort of, we talk, since we've been curating news for how long? Long. 14 years yeah. at least. <laughs> and, and even before we were together, I was doing yep. it before that. Um, you know, you're, you mentally tick off in your mind terms 
And then you start registering how frequently it happens. And then you start registering how it becomes sort of just an accepted phrase and blah, blah, blah. And you see over the arc of a, of a, of a, of a time period, how perceptions change, language changes. And your point is a really good one because, you know, you know, everybody has something to complain about Saudi Arabia, the U S or, or, or any country. Um, and it's interesting how the conversation has, has different touchstones, different language, different keywords. And, uh, and I would consider it, which is what you're suggesting. And I think very clearly and you're accurate. I couldn't agree hundred percent that this is significant progress. Yeah, Richard. And I really like the way that they sort of put this in the last sentence that you read uh, resilience, innovation, and a commitment to positive change. I mean, you, that's what we have seen, especially you and me in the, in the last five or six years and in the last two plus years ish that we've been doing this podcast, there is just a steady focused commitment on vision 2030 and doing what Saudi Arabia wants to do for itself. That would be in its best interest. And they are hearing all the criticism for sure, but they also know that they can't really do anything about people not updating their uh, perceptions of the kingdom. They just have to stay on the path of what their vision is. And they have been doing that. And it's weird because it's 2023 now. And man, there's a lot of progress. We talked last week about Neom and all the progress happening there in just the previous week from that podcast. And then in the last year, it's stretched out times 10 or 12. It's unbelievable. And so, um, and Richard, this makes me think too about uh, the piece that we discussed last week that uh, it was your one big thing that did that got a lot of feedback and a lot of attention, which was drawing attention to the David Rundell piece um, and Kefeller talking about, let's get down to the facts on 9-11 here. Um, let's talk about some of these talking points in the U.S. that are way too common that are inaccurate. And so, I don't know, just this is this is a good, this is a really cool. And yeah, Richard, I hope um, that we have someone from Karma on here to discuss this because this is this is great. I would expand on your uh, on one other thing, and I don't want to go too long. Um, I have no doubt that the Saudi government has data mining for this, and they are deep into understanding what social media, what's being said on social media, and and any all all, all sorts of platforms. I mean, it's a responsible thing to do. One of the big differences between now and six seven years ago was is Saudi Arabia is significantly less concerned about criticism than it used to be. Uh, it could get tied up and tripped over about any, any, you know, any kind of aspersion or, you know, it would just spend a lot of energy and time and perhaps diplomatic and, and, and brand equity, you know, addressing something that they perceive as an injustice or uh, inaccurate or uh, unnecessary or whatever sort of in the in the in the forum of public discourse that is normal uh they don't do that as much anymore and i think it's healthy and i think it's good and i say this and specifically with sports washing you know because there's a as we i i forget what the term i use but a firestorm or a, you know a, a, of 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 criticism about sports washing i don't think they particularly care because they have other plans and i've said it before but i i do think they handle criticism a little better than they used to. Yeah. And I think that's in part because they feel very confident about the direction in which they're headed and that they've had some successes to, that stacked up and this sort of thing. So, you know, that's just an aside, but it sort of is in, 
it, it is consistent with the conversation about international perceptions of Saudi Arabia and media perceptions. So anyway, that, that, that's, you know, my last thought on it, I guess. That was good. Richard, that is a, a really good one. And we're going to, as we always do, include a link to this piece. And inshallah, we will have somebody from Karma joining us in the near future to discuss inshallah. it. But that'll be in the uh, comments of the show notes as well. And um, yeah, but really good, Richard. Richard, my one big thing this week, we're going back to sports. We're on a sports. <laughs> we have sports in yellow sports. too. Yeah, that's right. We do. <laughs> um, we, I, sh- I sh- got to keep my live golf hat by the recording desk here should i grab um, mine i got yeah my, would you would I you got grab my yours? range i got my range go is it nearby <laughs> one second okay we just we just did a little cut there richard so that we could get our nice. various live golf merch on nice um okay <laughs> we're such dorks <laughs> yes uh, yes we are. <laughs> okay. only, you know the, the beauty of it is we get to be dorkish together that's right yeah it's like you know <laughs> it's, like, it's like a chess club that's you right <laughs> that's right um although having gone to a live golf event with you richard it is uh significantly cooler than any chess club in fact it's cooler <laughs> than normal golf we both asserted anyway richard my one big thing this week sports bender it's summer uh, we are playing the cards that are dealt to us because as we discussed, uh, actually, and, you know, kind of connected to your one big thing this week, a lot of the media coverage on Saudi Arabia is about sports. I mean, if you were to sort of scan and we did this last week, it's like half of all stories are on sports or something having to do with sports because sports media is huge. So you have European soccer and football, you have live golf and all of that going on. So it's just been sports on sports and sports. This week, Richard, is another big story for Saudi Arabian sports. A new report from the Financial Times this week, which cited two unnamed sources familiar with the matter. And before we let speculation run wild, neither of us are the sources for that story. Saudi Arabia plans to launch a multi-billion dollar golf investment company to expand its sports interests following its power grab in golf and success in English football. That's a quote from the Financial Times. So here is what we know based on the story from the Financial Times, which is one of the most rigorous paywalls out there. So I'm going to kind of just talk about the facts that are in there. Uh, We'll include a link to it, but um, yeah, kind of a tough paywall to crack into. Yeah, hopefully you subscribe. Hopefully you subscribe. It is a great paper it's a great it publication it's just yeah um so it's Dude. you just can't like share articles i found a way to do it but you typically can't <laughs> and if um, you can afford to subscribe please talk to us about you know becoming a you know supporter of saudi us trade yeah just give us the money and we'll read you the financial <laughs> times uh, on the podcast um <laughs> the sports investment group um it does not have a name richard that's what they called it in, in the story the sports investment group is in the formation stage, and it will unsurprisingly be part of the Kingdom Sovereign Wealth Fund, the PIF. The fund will have what the Financial Times called a quote-unquote war chest, which, if it's Saudi Arabia, can only mean a lot of money to fund its to fund its expansion. Excuse me, in a sign that Riyadh is committed to making further acquisitions, investments, and JVs in football, tennis, and other sports. Richard, the article quotes. Professor Simon Chadwick about yes. four paragraphs down. And I had to read very closely to see if they had just listened to last week's episode and used his quotes. They didn't, I don't think, which is they sad because it would have been really great to get that hat tip yeah, in seriously. the Financial Times. And that would make us one step closer to having lunch with the Financial Times, one of my favorite sections. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So obviously our listeners and viewers know Simon Chadwick was on with us last week. Um, and he sort of answered some questions about the size of the fund. There isn't really anything on that. Um, the article then goes on to discuss the recent history of the PIS interest and foray into sports, starting with its investment into the world of golf, live golf and PGA and some of that context and now interest in tennis, which our regular listeners know quite well. So back to what we know from the article, neither live golf nor Newcastle United will fall under the new company, according to one person familiar with the matter who said it would be focusing on new opportunities, which is very interesting. The company's launch will coincide with the PIF asserting a bigger role in the kingdom's football ambitions, which Richard was your one big thing a few weeks ago, including strengthening its clubs at home, uh, investing into the clubs itself with the PIF taking stakes in four clubs and also with acquisitions of major global stars for the Saudi league. One more interesting bit in this piece, Richard, uh, an interesting comp that the piece makes. The report says the new sports company could adopt the same approach with the PIF has taken towards the gaming industry with his investment company Savvy. The company, which is chaired by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has a $38 billion war chest and has spent almost $8 billion on acquisitions over the past 18 months in what one analyst is, according to the Times, described as a, quote, bulldozer approach. <laughs> snapping up uh, snapping up among others the us-based games developer scopely for five billion dollars so this is this is news this is a new strategy for the pif so instead of having this pif wide interest in sports it would be sort of compartmentalizing it into a i guess a uh subsidiary or uh, it's not really clear on exactly how it might be structured but this would sort of formalize the PIF's, or crystallize the PIF's interest in sports into a, a organization that is has its mandate to invest in sports and would be separate from some of the other stuff they're doing. So this is news and this is interesting. We will see as more details come out in the wake of this article, which was published about um, on Monday or Tuesday. Fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's my one big thing this week because we've covered so many sporting stories, and this is yeah. this is a big one this week. Yeah, excellent one. Uh, really interesting. I guess three initial thoughts. One, it's fascinating how Saudi Arabia has sort of become the boogeyman in global sports because when you look at this article, is there anything there? There is an interesting analysis of what's going on and that sort of thing, but it's right now it's just speculation, right? Yeah, uh, two 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 sources saying, "Hey, right, they're setting right. up, you know, formalizing." And we it. get we give it credibility because it's the FT. We know they're responsible in their journalism and they try to be. So, so I'm, I'm we would anticipate that is coming, but the, the the fact is we're waiting on the front end of speculation of maybe possible could be. Mm -hmm. Yet it's a big article on the FT, and this is the sort of the the you know, gargantuan uh, gravity that Saudi Arabia is bringing right now. And so that's one thought. <clears throat> the second thought is, I think it probably makes sense to try and get a step removed from the PIF. You know, we don't need to have, I, I'm sure that, you know, it's just like in you know, the litigation between LIV and PGA, they're trying to pull in the PIF um, and have, you know, Yasser Rumayan testify and this sort of thing. And, and that's an uncomfortable place to be. I think the PAF would rather have it be removed. So I think, you know, from a just an organizational standpoint, it makes sense. And as it mentions, you have the template with the savvy sports, 
which is, is a debt, you know, a dedicated, you know, entity to go into esports and develop that sector. The third thing is, is why not? And I say that because there's, it's, you know, October, 2021, two things happened. Uh, consummated the acquisition of Newcastle United. Announced live. So we're still, we're, we're well within two years, under two years since that date. Newcastle United has been an unmitigated success. I mean, this is a, this was a, a club that was, you know, you know, at, at death throes with its owner between his, his constituents, his fans, you know, it was about to be relegated from the Premier League, you know, had a tremendous season is now at the, was at the top of the tables pretty much in the Premier League last, this past season. Um, goodwill aside, the value of the club is being particularly enhanced. So it's a good business investment. Live, you know, as I said, with under two years ago, now has a seat at the table with the PGA and Global Golf. They do not have not taken over PGA, do not control PGA, but they are a partner in Nuco, the company that they have created with PGA and in, in, in the DP World Tour. And of course, we know that that's all still to be determined because it's an unfolding saga. But you know, whatever brand they were trying to, whatever reputational bounce they were trying to get with Live is now transforming possibly into some economic and financial investment gain. So anyway, you know, their forays into this have been successful. Live is clearly still a major loss leader, but you can see how what it's gotten them and it's gotten them to the table to maybe transform into, you know, some, some real returns. Um, and they're doing this across the table. You know, they're looking, as you we've talked about, they're looking at professional tennis, men's and women's, and we'll have a yellow on that. Um, so anyway, those are my three thoughts. And, and there's probably more to, more as I consider it, but uh, it is it is interesting, you know, the distance to the discussion has come with regard to Saudi participation in sports. And I do, and I hark back to Simon Chadwick, who uh, made the point in that, you know, excellent episode that the FT should have, you know, drawn from, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has spent decades punching below its weight. You know, now it appears to be punching at its weight or above. Great point. I'm going to leave it there, Richard, because those are all really good points as a follow on to that. Let's get to our conversation with Dana Alajlani. She's terrific, a really good conversation at getting her perspective on everything in Saudi Arabia. She's head of public affairs for the GCC at Sanofi, but she discusses really her role um, in part as co-chairwoman of the AmCham. Just enjoy this because it, it really is, she's terrific. Yeah, it's wonderful to spend time with her. She has a lot of insights. We're delighted to welcome on to the 966, Dana Alajlani, who is head of public affairs for the GCC at Sanofi, the French multinational pharmaceutical and healthcare company headquartered in Paris. Dana is also co-chairwoman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Saudi Arabia, AmCham KSA, and is involved there with the Women in Business Committee. Dana, welcome to the 966. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Hi, Dana. Uh, so excited. We so how this happened, Dana. You and I first met when you were uh, public and government affairs with ExxonMobil, and I was quite impressed then. 
you moved on to bigger and and you know bigger things. And although you're you're working for a European company, we still love you. Yeah. Um, but uh, we had I I was looking and uh, and we have had Bill Foster at Amgen KSA, the president of KSA, and and I've sort of been watching the Women in Business Committee for some time. I think it's three years in, established three years ago, if that's correct. I just happened to look and I said, and it looked co co chair, Dana Alajani. I guess, oh, how lucky are we? So I reached out to you um, to talk about this. And you said, great. Uh, and so we're really looking forward to talking about uh, the Women in Business Committee, but also your personal story and, uh, and, and your take on sort of the ecosystem and the, and the environment for women working in Saudi Arabia, the employment issues, any number of things. But let's go, let's go back and, and, and get a baseline. Let's, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So, yes, uh, I was very happy to hear from you also, uh, Richard. Uh, clearly, uh, women and inclusion in the workplace is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, the reason for that is, you know, so I'm a Saudi uh, who got the opportunity to uh, get educated abroad. And I uh, came back and I started my career almost uh, 20 years ago. Uh, it uh, always shocks me when I say that. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was a very different Saudi Arabia. And this is, you know, before Vision 2030 and before all of these changes. And so clearly things were not very easy at the time. And uh, so... I personally know what it feels like uh, to be the only woman in the room. And in my specific case, many of the times, the first woman who has ever been employed by that organization. And so, you know, given uh, these uh, challenges, I think that uh, a theme that kind of developed over, over my career, and I think uh, unconsciously I kind of uh, went for the jobs where I was told that no uh, woman uh, or Saudi woman has ever taken on these roles. And so um, I always tried to work hard, get these roles, um, and then, uh, you know, just to prove that Saudi women are, uh, are capable. And, uh, and then in my own way of giving back, uh, I tried through uh, mentorship and advocacy and sponsorship to support in uh, in making sure that when I left those organizations, you know, I was no longer the only woman uh, at the organization. So really, it's been a theme that's followed my career. And I ended up uh, by chance pursuing a career that involves, I do um, government engagement and negotiations, which as you can appreciate, you know, 12, 13 years ago was not a very typical career path uh, for a woman. And there weren't, in fact, many women in the government at that point in time. Thankfully, things have changed, but it's a different Saudi Arabia today. Uh, we already, uh, you know, my mind's turning. So it, it is. So your purview now is broader. So your GCC, you know, you were you, you, you're looking at all the Gulf Cooperation Council states. Are you interacting with a lot of women at your level? Okay, so yes and no. Uh, in terms of uh, government engagement, um, I think that with Vision 2030, uh, there have been a lot of women that have been put in uh, senior roles. And an example is uh, Her Royal Highness uh, Princess Rima uh, in the US. And so you can see that in some senior government roles, there are now women as deputy ministers. Um, however, 
in certain in the corporate world, uh, sometimes this trend has not uh, has not been as uh, as visible, and there aren't as many women in uh, in senior roles in the corporate world. Now, when you look at other countries, uh, you see also there's a similar kind of trend um, in the UAE or um, in other countries, like for example, the, uh, the in the UAE you have some women who are ministers. We're not in that uh, position yet in uh, in Saudi Arabia, so it differs from country to country. And so, yes and no, it depends. Yeah, and I apologize. I sort of went off script there because I, I thought that it's interesting because your your vision is bigger now. But let's talk about the Women in Business Committee. And uh, we had a fascinating discussion a couple of weeks ago about the the trajectory that committee has has gone on and you just finished up a, a what you thought was a really successful mentorship program can you talk about you know the path that that women in business committee has taken and and why it's sort of changed some of its targets yes so uh, i have been blessed uh with uh first parents who uh pushed me to always uh you know try my best and go for all of these um uh, uh, positions that were not open for women. And then uh, as, a, as a mother and a wife, I had to juggle work-life balance. And so without the support of my husband to enable me to take on these roles and to put up my hand, you know, it, a lot of the things that I have achieved would not have been possible. And so I know that uh, women sometimes need a little bit more of a support system, uh, in order to enable them to go for these, uh, to to develop their career. And so I found myself always gravitating, it's been I think now for seven or eight years, uh, towards uh, being part of uh, the corporate uh, women uh, networks at the organizations where I work. So, uh, it, you know, they, they're called different things. And, um, and for example, today I co-chair uh, at Sanofi, it's called Gender Balance Employee Resource Group. So I co-chair that. So I do that internally. And then externally, I co-chair the, the women in business. So I think that uh, being part of these type of committees uh, gives you the opportunity to support a cause that you believe in, but also to reflect back on some of the things that has that have helped you in your career and therefore come up with programs that can potentially help other women in their careers. So uh, when we first started uh, WIM, uh, we focused a lot on entrepreneurs. And there was a reason for that. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, if you look back uh, 20, 30 years ago, some of the sectors that were open to women were uh, the nonprofit sector, were the healthcare sector. And uh, a good way for, for somebody to potentially enter the workforce and get around some of these uh, limitations was to start their own business. And so there are some very important uh, entrepreneurs that started their businesses 20, 30 years ago. And therefore, this was the focus of WIB when we first started. But uh, it became apparent after the first year that uh, there's a lot of focus from uh, the government and the private sector on programs to support women entrepreneurs in the kingdom, which is great. And therefore, we felt that perhaps we could use our uh, resources and our knowledge to support women in a different way. And we felt that there was a gap in supporting women in advancing their career in the corporate world. And so this is where we sat down and we thought of how can we help them. 
one of the things that uh, has personally shaped my career is mentorship. So uh, I have personally been blessed by mentors who walked into my life at the time when I least expected it and transformed my career in ways that I never thought was possible. And uh, you know how they did that was uh, through, for example, um, kind of helping me understand the external environment and translate that into uh, you know, opportunities and put my hand up when opportunities came along. Uh, and sometimes even when I didn't think I was ready, they pushed me to take on these roles. And so I felt that mentorship really helped me achieve some of the goals that I've achieved today. And the uh, women in the uh, uh, Women in Business Committee felt strongly about mentorship. So that is when we started building our flagship program about uh, a couple of years ago. We've done it twice so far. Uh, and then over those two years, you know, it wasn't even enough to launch it last year. What we did was we launched it, we evaluated it, we edited it, you know, we made sure that it, um, it effectively helped women. And we have some amazing success stories that came out of the mentorship program, like women getting promotions, women uh, resigning and getting another job at another company, you know, and so really like pushing their, their careers forward. And so that's how we've developed some of the programs in, in the women in business. And now they're really focused on uh, helping women in the corporate world, uh, you know, push their career and progress their career into these more senior roles. So in the Saudi work environment, and, and I think maybe you can talk about this, um, in terms of uh, employment of women, there were some, there are some 2030 benchmarks, which have already been hit. But um, I get the sense with your mentorship program that it's, it's, it's sort of beyond the metrics. It's really it's about what the experience is and what the challenges these women are facing in the workplace, which is not just it's no longer a, a, a legal equality, which is, I think, has been mandated to a large extent. Uh, but there are any number of other issues. Can you talk a little bit about over the course of these two years, what are the issues that, that women who are trying to advance in the corporate workplace in Saudi Arabia are facing, the, 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 if there are priority issues? So, uh, I, yes, it, it's true. Uh, thankfully, with Vision 2030, uh, we've reached these targets. So the target was 30%. And I think the last report I saw, it stands at uh, 33%, So which is amazing. When, when I joined uh, the workforce, it was, I think, 9%. Um, <laughs> And so uh, these are amazing achievements. I always push myself to, you know, so what's next? Uh, uh, what can we do more? And so some of the challenges, I think, remain in the fact that when you look at uh, how this uh, diversity has been achieved, you will find a higher percentage of women at entry level and then a few at senior level that were appointed. But then there's a gap in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I feel that the next chapter that we need to address uh, in the corporate world, in the government sector, is looking at this middle layer and then looking at the top layer and, and having the uh, diversity, the 30%, 33% reflected in the entire organization from entry level all the way to the board. So I feel that this is really like the next thing that we need to focus on. And this is uh, something that our mentorship program 
supports with because these are the kind of so we have criteria for who uh, we accept in the mentorship program and typically it's women with a few years of uh, experience because really we're looking to accelerate uh, their career in that middle management uh, area. And culturally, we talked a little bit. A lot of the, these, so these are women middle managers, but there's still they. You would would you characterize them as a younger cohort? I mean, obviously, you know, there's not a lot. The, the number of, of of 55 to 60 year old women who are working in the Saudi workforce is very small because the base is so small. They didn't have an opportunity. But as women are coming in, each of these cohort groups will get bigger and bigger. Um. This cohort group, when they come into a corporate environment, and even though uh, legally there's equity, uh, are they being accepted? Is there resistance? Is it, um, and and, that's a broad statement, but just in terms of of, of sort of a broad take on it, what are the major sort of cultural challenges they're seeing in trying to move ahead, trying to establish themselves? trying to earn the respect and regard that that would help them move forward in a company. So, yes, I, you've touched on another aspect of, uh, of diversity, which we're seeing playing out right now with all of these young women and younger generation. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a very big momentum behind Vision 2030, and therefore there's a very big influx into the private sector and the government sector with you know wanting to be part of the change and so uh, historically when you look at uh, the leaders in the past in the government and in the private sector a lot of them are are older uh, men uh, and uh, technology was not part of their you know um, career or daily use and so so you have a different type type of diversity that's playing out right now and it's really generational diversity where there is this older generation that has a lot of knowledge and a lot of experiences to share, and this influx of this new generation that's coming in and really connecting them both is uh, is very important. So through the mentorship program, we tried to do that, but it's not only through the mentorship program, it's also through things like, like uh, uh, your show, honestly, because your show uses um, technology and social media which are mediums that appeal to this generation. So for the older generation to use these tools to connect with the lower genera- with the younger generation to make sure that this knowledge is not lost and that there is a bridge between what has been done in the past and what we're trying to do in the future. Uh, it's fascinating. So, and you could all, you could, I guess this tension, I, I wouldn't characterize attention, but this reality is, is, is not only just young women, it's you know, young males, you know, the same, yes. same dynamic. Interesting that they have that to share. Um, where are, so these are, so the, the women who are coming into the mentorship program are, and there's a, you know, they, there's an application process. So the, these young women are, are, and they're not necessarily young, but, but you know, they're skilled, uh, the professional, obviously they're very motivated because they're attracted to this in order to move forward. Where are these women looking for jobs? And I say that because it's an interesting dynamic. It was brought up to us by it, it was we've had, we have an ongoing discussion. Lucian Lucian can can confirm our ongoing discussion with an avid listener, talking about where young talent goes. And it, it, the point was, you know, well, we have things like PIF. We have these largely state-owned organizations who are paying pretty good money, for sure. 
Then we have a, a growing group of corporates who are expanding their base, you know, lots of influx of people opening offices. And you're familiar with the regional HQ process. You know, there's a lot of job opportunities coming to, to Riyadh. There's a lot of job opportunities being created by the government. Where are, where are, these, where are these women going, these professional women? So we talked a little bit about the momentum behind Vision 2030. It's really uh, invigorated the uh, younger generation, and many of them want to be part of the change. And so given that, they are gravitating towards the government sector. So uh, it's, we're in a situation where the private sector is, uh, is competing very aggressively with the government sector for, for talent. And... Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's great because, like I told you, we, I started my career, I do government engagement, and there were, there were no women in the room, no women in the building. In certain entities, there weren't even restrooms for women, right? So this is, this is a sector that historically did not have many women in it. So for, for you now to go to, an, to a government entity and see almost gender parity sometimes in certain meetings and in certain... Uh, uh, forums, it, it's it's pretty impressive, and I understand their drive because even in the corporate sector, like my, my job is is government engagement and working on on um, uh, aligning Vision Twenty Thirty uh, projects with uh, business opportunities, and so it's really a source of of excitement and and motivation and so we find a lot of these women and men young graduates from abroad from the universities here in saudi arabia gravitating towards the government sector so the private sector is trying to attract this talent uh, sometimes they can't pay the salaries that are being paid by the private sector so this is this is a, a challenge uh, and uh, sometimes the projects are not going to be as uh, visible or clearly linked to Vision 2030, and so maybe some of them uh, will not uh, see the uh, the excitement of working uh, in the in the corporate world. So this this is the kind of uh, dynamics that we're seeing right now. But I feel that the tide is shifting a little bit, and I feel that. After their government jobs, you can see many of them are going back into, are going to the corporate world to start working on also building um, these projects, these opportunities, diversifying the economy by working in the corporate world toward, uh, towards achieving some of these Vision 2030 goals. Because like you know, it, it will take both sectors to make Vision 2030 a reality and not the government can't do it alone. Fascinating, because that's sort of the, the almost the exact reverse of, say, in the States, where the private sector pays more and in many terms seen as more um, uh, attention grabbing. You know, you're going to get you have a, 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 large, a, a bigger platform on which to shine as opposed to if you went into government. Uh, and I guess that speaks to the just the activity and the, and the weight that a place like PIF and other uh, sort of state uh, largest state-owned enterprises are are playing in the Saudi um, economy. Almost every on a, so in the U.S. and you know because you you studied here you got a number of degrees here at, at Tufts. Uh, but if all things were equal at U.S. colleges in terms of quality of applicants, 
I'd say most of them would be about 75% women. And we have, we've talked with many employers in Saudi Arabia when they talk about their, the, the, their interest in um, bringing women on board and, and expanding their employment opportunities for women. The quality of applicants vis-a-vis male applicants, almost always women are really very strong. Um, is that attention in Saudi Arabia at all? I mean, when you have these really capable, motivated, focused women coming in and competing in a, in a, in a milieu that's really been largely male-oriented, male-dominated. So, so the short answer is, so is the, yes. Yeah, I know you're going to try and be diplomatic, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But, but, you know, but let's, let's just take a step back. Uh, I, I explained a little bit how things were different in the past for women, and there weren't as many opportunities in uh, in the corporate world and in the government uh, sector for women. So a trend that uh, that was very present over the past couple of decades is that the level of education of women in Saudi Arabia is higher than the level of education of men. So this is uh, st- statistics, right? These are these are numbers, and the reason for that was because they couldn't work. And therefore, they spent more time at the universities getting, uh, uh, you know, higher degrees. So then all of a sudden, the, the uh, workplace opened up to women uh, in a very, you know, very, very quickly. It opened up uh, to women. And, uh, and so they started applying for jobs. And so in the base case, sometimes uh, the, uh, the qualifications are higher just because the women had more time to spend at college and, and men started working working sooner. So that's some of the dynamics that are very specific to this, um, to this mm-hmm. country. And so the other thing is uh, you also have, uh, uh, like, um, the, in the government and in uh, the private sector, um, you have a lot of companies and uh, senior leaders that are men that really believe in giving equal opportunities to women. And and therefore, because of that, and because there haven't been that many women in the workplace, you find that they are very keen to hire as many women as possible, as quickly as possible in order to, to, you know, remedy the fact that they were excluded from the workplace for many, many years. So, is it true that maybe uh, more women are finding employment opportunities than men today? Perhaps, but there are underlying factors like the level of education, the fact that they have been excluded for so long. But then when you look at uh, hiring process at, for example, Sanofi and ExxonMobil and many global companies around the world, usually hiring is never done based on gender. It's, right. it's based on, you know, you, what, what they try to do is they try to have an equal pool of candidates to choose from. So if you're hiring for a position and you have four candidates that have reached the final round and the four candidates are male, I think that it's only fair for companies, and this is exactly what happens at Sanofi, to ask for uh, 50-50 representation in the pools of candidates that have applied for the specific job. And then... Uh, selection is based on merit and not on gender. At that point, when you have yes. that more more uh, broadly more broadly represented pool, yes. Uh, 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 this is the, and 
I don't want to put you in hypotheticals, but we're in a fascinating point right now. So Vision 2030 was announced in 2016. We are at the halfway point between 2016 and 2030. A lot of what we talk about on the 966 is that uh, 2030 is a goal. It's not a it's not a promise. And so if 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 we, these goals are uh, you know 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent achieved, that's all good because it's the direction that matters. But in terms of women in the workforce, what would you like to see continue in terms of current trajectory? Where would you, where would you hope to be in in the next seven years of this sort of March to twenty thirty? So I, I think we already uh, touched upon the fact that uh, we can see, I can see today a lot of women in entry-level positions and few at the top. I would like to see over the next seven years uh, the 30% or even more than 30% workforce being women across the entire organization. I would like to see more women in board positions, CEO positions, middle management. I think that uh, when you look at the number, uh, it's a great number to have achieved. But if you dig a little deeper, it will not be equally distributed among organizations. And I feel that um, this could be the, the next thing that uh, we can work on. I know that personally at Sanofi, this is something that, uh, that we work on all the way globally and locally, all the way from entry level to the company. I think that uh, Saudi Arabia has, um, even other countries in the region, this is not uh, pointing the finger just here, right? Um, there is there's room for improvement uh, this area across the entire organizations and government entities. So, uh looking forward it it, it really uh, speaks to what the women in business committee is doing because your mentorship program is is trying essentially to fill these middle management upper management uh, the population of of Saudi women make it larger more competent more you know you know more aware and more experienced so that when it comes time to name this senior leadership and and fill these upper positions there's a good population a very strong population of of women employees in place Yes, so exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And then also we try to choose people from different sectors. So that's another thing that I would like to uh, uh, see in the next seven years. Uh, when you look at, um, so I was educated both in Saudi Arabia and outside of Saudi Arabia. And one of the things that I did by default was be an ambassador for the country. So every time, you know, somebody wanted to ask about Saudi Arabia, uh, about women, about what life is like, you know, I tried not to uh, take some of the comments I heard personally, because, you know, it's it's lack of awareness of the, of the country. Uh, and so I think that moving forward, the more we have women in uh, uh, different industries, uh, communicating also with the with the outside. So one industry that's becoming very important clearly is sports. So women in sports can can be a huge advantage for Saudi Arabia to showcase uh, some of the advancements uh, uh, that were made in terms of the inclusion of uh, of women. And so going back to the mentorship program in WIB and the other programs that we have in WIB, we try to select. In our, uh, 
in our so we work with the Atlantic uh, Council on a uh, entrepreneurship uh, mentorship program. Uh, we have our own mentorship program. We have multiple programs over the year uh, with our sponsors. We do events on International Women's Day. We try to get uh, a broad representation of different sectors, defense, sports, healthcare. You know, so it's not only women across an organization at the different levels. It's also women across sectors, government and different private sectors. We should uh, we'll give a little shout out to the 966 because you mentioned the Win Fellows with Atlantic Council. We're a, a big fan of Atlantic Council and um, Amjad Ahmed over there, who's great. I know they've worked with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just a couple episodes, we had uh, Renato Jeffrey and Sarah Bin Laden on, who are Win Fellows. Mm-hmm. And I, I bring this up because this is why I'm so happy we get to talk with you. Dana, because, you know, uh, Renat and Sarah are telling a specific story. It's an entrepreneurial story. It's a slice. It's very fascinating. And I think our, our listeners absolutely find it very interesting. Your take is a more is a, a bigger picture one. And um, I just think it's really valuable. Thank you. You know, we all find our path, right? And some, the path of entrepreneurship is the right path for them some joining the government sector, some uh, the corporate world. And so it's important to put in place uh, uh, programs that enable women to choose whichever sector they want uh, based on their personal preference. And that's what we try to do at, um, at WIB for the women who choose to build their careers in the corporate world. I'm going to do one more shout out. <laughs> Apologies. I say that because upcoming later, we're speaking with the, the head of MENA for PepsiCo, uh, Amr Sheikh. Mm-hmm. PepsiCo is involved with you, women in business. Mm-hmm. It's also awesome women with the Win Fellows, supports all of these things. And so it, it seems like everywhere we go, there's PepsiCo. But a- anyway, you know, I, I'm, what I'm doing is just... I'm connecting to different episodes, that sort of all thing. All the threads starting to connect Exactly. <laughs> and Dana, we thank you also for your patience um, when you were a student here in the U.S. for all the questions that you got and the <laughs> patient answers you gave with the in the face of general ignorance about Saudi Arabia. So that's that's really appreciated on uh, on behalf of 330 million Americans who <laughs> ask those questions. Dana Al-Ajlani, who is head of public affairs at the GCC at Sanofi, just such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Thank you. And since you guys did a sh- uh, shout out, I am going to do the same. Please do. Uh, so uh, we have uh, multiple sponsors of the uh, Women in Business uh, Committee, people who are, we tend, we chose people who really believe in in the importance of including uh, women. So we have Al-Alayan, who has been doing a lot for women over the past few decades. We have ExxonMobil. Uh, and uh, Sanofi, as well as as Pepsi. So really, these are companies that have been uh, trailblazers in this area. And this is why we have partnered with them at the Women in Business in order to help us um, advance this cause that they really, really believe in. So thank you to our sponsors as well. Yes. And and while we're on that, uh, Lubna Olean, an unparalleled, extraordinary individual. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're welcome anytime on the night six. <laughs> yeah, join us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope she's listening. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shukran, Dana. 
شكرا مع السلامة That was our conversation with Dana Elajlani. You can listen to the, that segment, other segments on YouTube if you want to break it out, um, or you can have the whole, as we called it a few weeks ago, Richard Lamkebsa, uh, as an audio file or as an audio download, Spotify, um, Apple Podcast, I think 28 platforms is the last time I checked. I haven't looked yeah, in a while. but Any really, platform you want. Yeah, it's sort of... I'd like to take credit for it. It sort of automatically syndicates out to those platforms. So um, it was all me, but it actually was not. Um, it so, was. Yeah, it th was. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, <laughs> Lucian Ziegler's in the house. <laughs> yes. Hello. <laughs> the great syndicator. Um, Richard, <laughs> let's get to Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> we have to get a set. We have to get a thing made for that. We do. We do, but can um, it be as good as the stupidity we 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 inflict every week? And you get an original look at it each week, so there's something new and fresh for it our. Is true. Recurring and every listeners. time, you know, that's the thing about doing this with you, which is so much fun. You know, each time you, so you know, you get on, you go, oh my goodness, am I prepared? God, it's been a crazy week. There's so much going on. You know, you know, but, you know, is the one big thing adequate? You know, I'm prepared for yellow. Blah, blah, blah. And then you get on, you get energized because it's so much fun. Wait, Richard, you, know? you prepare for this? I just, <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I, know. I know. It is a lot of prep. Um, can't even cover that up. Um, <laughs> but it is fun. Agreed. Um, okay. Number one, non-oil business activity in Saudi Arabia surged in June, supported by strength in construction and tourism. A survey showed on Wednesday, the seasonally adjusted Riyadh Bank Saudi Arabia Purchasing Managers Index rose to 59.6 in June from 58.5 in May, as well as above and was well above the 50 mark that signals growth and activity. The sub-index for output surged to 66.1 from 61.7 in May and the fastest pace of growth since March 2015. That is enormously good news for Saudi policymakers. Richard, the quote from Naif Al-Gaith, who is chief economist at Riyadh Bank, which was included in this article, would be a great, um, he's welcome to join us at any point, of course. Yeah, he said, nice. uh, quote, the kingdom's non-oil private sector remained on a steeply upward growth trajectory by the end of the second quarter as inflows of new business accelerated, particularly in construction and tourism, as you mentioned. Yet this economic spike may contribute to increased inflationary pressures, which they'll have to keep an eye on, of course, alongside reported increases in staff and construction material costs. But you're seeing an, as an economy, just looking back from it, that is hot to the touch. So good news for them. Yeah, absolutely. There's not much to add. They've managed their inflation pretty well. I think it's 2.8%. Yeah. Um, but they're sensitive to it, and um, understandably. But you know, those construction and tourism, construction influence or tourism, you know, it's what has this government been spending a boatload on? And and you see the non-oil economy trailing along behind. So it's good to see. Um, and it's very encouraging. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 really, really good news that those are the drivers behind this, and especially at this period now. We will see, too, with summer. I mean, summer is going to kind of slow things down in both of those sectors a little bit. So we'll see what happens next. Um, but that it's just great news. Um, yeah. Richard, yellow number two. 
the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia civil transaction law enacted on 19 June 2023 by a royal decree M191 has now been pushed, has now been published in the official Gazette Um Al Qura. It will come into effect 180 days from the date of publication around 16th of December 2023. The law has seven chapters and 100, uh, sorry, 720 articles um, and is one of the largest legislative issuances in KSA history. It is a significant milestone for Saudi Arabia as prior to this new law, Islamic law, Sharia, derived mainly from the principles of the Holy Quran and the Sunnah, has governed contracts in KSA. That wasn't my best read, but um, <laughs> a really important story. Actually, I think it's the most important story we do today in this episode, outside of our discussion yes. with Dana. Um, if you if you look at it in terms of the larger um, redirection of the Saudi environment, Saudi investment in commercial environment um you know this is this is the third part of four pieces of legislation that have been promised the personal status law which is in place the law of evidence which is placed coming after this is the penal code for discretionary sentences so these are four major major revamps of how you do business and and how you conduct your existence in saudi arabia either in this case, you know, commercial and, and uh, you know, your your corporate business and includes, you know, contract formation, execution and termination, acts causing harm, damn it, loss and damages. I mean, it it, it it is the, it's a critical, critical element to promoting investment, making investors comfortable in, in, in doing business in Saudi Arabia. And and as I said, I think it's probably the most important thing we'll talk about today outside of our our, our visit with Dana. Uh, it's really important. And, you know, it'd be coming in at the end of this year. Uh, people will be prepping for it. We'll have more discussion about it. But it's this is a fundamental building block in Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 and their goals of achieving, you know, a certain level of, of investment, a certain level of uh, international participation in, the, in their economy. I mean, this is really critical. Richard, this article was from, or this readout and this article about what is happening, it was from Denton's, the law firm. Law firms have been jockeying to take uh, advantage of some of the developments in the kingdom, international law firms, and set up shop in Saudi Arabia because there's just so much going on. The summary of this piece from the Denton's piece is it pretty much echoes what you said. The introduction of the law is a welcomed regulatory shift in Saudi Arabia it will go some way to remove uncertainty and speculation on contractual formation and how key legal risks will be resolved in Saudi Arabia. And it goes on to say the embracing of contemporary business practices and the increasing transparency reflects Saudi Arabia's commitment to be at the forefront of global business transactions. You know, that's not that, that those are that's fairly strong language and, and applause of what is happening in Saudi Arabia, not just with this law, but with these legal reforms that have been ongoing since Vision 2030. So and, it's good news. I mean, that's great. I mean, we had uh, just a tremendous discussion with the CEO of the Saudi uh, Center for Commercial Arbitration. Yes. And I recommend it to you uh, because they were so thorough in determining the best practices the things that, you know, the, the internationally accepted uh, guidelines. And it was very thorough and very well thought out. And I am thinking this civil transactions law is the same deal. 
So it should align properly with what would every international, you know, corporate is accustomed to and what they've been seeing for, for, you know, in their, in other, you know, investment environments. And Richard, we've had a, a good steady flow of lawyers that have come on to the 966, Fahad al-Maliki, uh, Chris Johnson, you mentioned um, Dr. Hamid Mira from the center. Um, this would be a good thing to maybe get an update on in a few months as this starts coming online. But I bet, and actually I know for a fact that Fahad al-Maliki is probably one of the busier guys in Saudi Arabia now because of all the things going on with his new growing law practice. So good for him. Yeah, I agree. I think this will be, a, this, we'll have a conversation. We'll have more conversations mm -hmm. about this. I think mm -hmm. it's really good. Yep. Um, Yella number three, uh, Andrea Gaudenzi, the chair of the Association of Tennis Professionals, ATP, has confirmed, quote, unquote, positive talks have taken place with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund and other interested parties regarding investment in the tour. While Gaudenzi revealed, revealed discussions around investing in various ventures had taken place, he did caution that new partners would need to respect tennis's history and work together with the sport's current authorities rather than disrupt the status quo. Rather than disrupt the status quo. We also stated the ATP did not need cash and warned about the risk of dilution. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of the major tennis players would agree with that last part. Almost all of them have come out saying this is awesome news because they see a chance potentially at a payday or at maybe larger purses for some of these tennis tournaments or majors. Uh, Richard, this is interesting because this sort of did come out of the last few weeks only. It's a somewhat recent development. This was the report. We did ask Professor Simon about this last week, and he said, you know, it's really early on in these talks, but people that he had talked to said that this is going to happen. I think that tennis could use a jolt like this. The popularity of tennis seems to not have grown as quickly as other sports globally. It used to be huge here in the U.S., Richard, and now it's kind of not. Um, but this is interesting. I mean, this this ties into my one big thing, and you know, this is. A, a, the PIF is clearly interested in this, and who knows if this will be done through the PIF or, or through their new vehicle that they will be setting up reportedly. Um, but this is very interesting. Yeah, it, it, again, in discussion, you're one big thing. You know, the seeing Saudi Arabia everywhere, and they're looking everywhere. So I, we're, we're early on this. We'll see what happens. What I there's a little uh, sort of twist that I think is kind of interesting, in that um, they're also talking with women's tennis. So, uh, you know, the Women's Tennis Association chairman and, and CEO Steve Simon said that he'd visited the country with some players in February as part of the evaluation process. So they're talking about that. And part of the argument, part of the attraction with the women's is that, you know, with Saudi uh, support and investment, you can have purses that are equivalent to men's in time. So I just the, the twist is Saudi Arabia enabling women to have equal pay, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is not, uh, you know, if you'd have projected the plot, uh, especially, you know, a lot of people are critical of Saudi Arabia is not something you might've anticipated. Agreed, Richard, this is a chance for me to brag and possibly get a big payday from the PIF because I am, uh, 
intramural tennis champion at the University of Virginia 2007, I believe was the year that I won it, awesome. um, which is cool. I've kind of not played much in the last few years, but I'm willing to get back into it Absolutely. as a, as a sport ambassador for the PIF, if they're interested. Spokesperson. In my quote, yes. <laughs> um, but this is, I mean, how could this be bad for the sport of tennis if indeed they stick with what Gaudenzi said, which is to respect tennis history? It is a sport with a ton of history and traditions. I mean, we just saw at Wimbledon that allowing women to not wear white or not have to wear white panties underneath their outfits was just allowed. And that was revolutionary for a club that says you have to wear all white. It's a, it's a very traditional sport. So they probably don't want a tennis, but louder approach would be a guess <laughs> music during the matches, et cetera. So <laughs> multicolored balls. And yeah. <laughs> um, Richard, is this me? I think that's you. This yeah. is me. Okay, yeah, sorry. Um, yellow number four, Saudi Arabia is considering a push to attract more outside investors to bolster its top football competition. Part of a strategic revamp that started with an influx of star players from Europe. The Saudi Pro League is discussing the option of a new broadcast de- uh, of new broadcast deals, excuse me, and partnerships with PE companies to grow the competition's appeal as the kingdom works to become a powerhouse in the world of professional sport. This is according to people familiar with the strategy. You know, do you remember way back one of our earliest uh, discussions was about sports washing? Yes. And we were like, what, how, like. This had to be, this is over a year ago. Yeah, I do remember that very well. But we broke it out into three areas that we thought, you know, one was brand, which is the sports washing part. So this is what we, you know, my one big thing today was on, on uh, media and, uh, perceptions of Saudi Arabia. So this was sort of it. And we now know, and we've evolved it in discussions with people like Simon Chadwick, we're talking about soft power, but let's just say it's sports washing. So one, you know, that was one aspect. The other one that we talked about is that there's a home uh, population and audience to which these endeavors are speaking and trying to uh, promote more participation, trying to uh, capture young minds to be excited about sports and you know have heroes and and work to become like those heroes and, uh, and the net effect being a healthier saudi population the third thing is um investment return and i think that's sort of been for me anyway sort of been my guiding framework you know for all of this and uh and, and i i raised that because i think this is interesting because we're talking about in the previous yala about Saudi Arabia, PIF setting up a specific entity to deal with their sports investment, something along the lines of savvy sports, the e-sports. Saudi Arabia has put in place for their football ecosystem, Saudi Arabia's sports club, sport clubs investment and privatization project. We're talking in place in the last three or four months. And and they're the ones who are overseeing these investments in those four, four clubs right now. PIF investments. And there's also other investment, private sector from Saudi Ramco and STC and Al Ula and Neom in other clubs. So they're 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 promoting investment in these clubs for the six, you know, basically for the purpose of making the league much more commercially viable. They want to raise the revenues from 120 million dollars uh, in 2022 to more than 480 million. They want the market value of this. Saudi Professional League 
to rise from 800 million now to more than 2.1 billion by 2030. They want these they want these clubs to be well run enough, profitable enough to be targets of of investment for private sector. So it it all it all just folds in together and and what you're seeing is there's some economic and investment sense to it all. Could not agree more, Richard. Yellen number six, a little switch up. Um, startups in MENA raised $35.6 million in June, across 45 deals, pushing the half-year funding total to $1.6 billion. Uh, May had been a bounce-back month for investment in the region, while June has been less than dazzling, marking a 92% decrease month-on-month. Saudi Arabia ranked first in terms of the funding value with $25 million across 12 rounds. UAE came in second with startups attracting $6 million over 20 rounds. Richard, we've stayed on top of that, uh, on top of this story, which is why it's good that we're including this update today. And we've had a, a we've talked a lot about the VC region and uh, system, ecosystem in Saudi Arabia and the importance of it. And recently we had Yad Al-Bayouk on the program to discuss a little bit about what he's doing. There is good in this, Richard, it, that it's, you know, that Saudi Arabia leaded, le- sorry, led the the beginning of this thing <laughs> can't even talk myself, um, but it's it's good that Saudi Arabia ranked first here because that's significant. Twenty five million dollars across twelve rounds. That's definitely not where they need to be. But it's good news that they had some momentum going. But it is not. Um, this is not good, and I don't know like why. What what is the broader reason behind the slowdown? Is it because the summer months are here? There was the bounce back last month but again that was really one big deal so what is happening here i'm not entirely sure are there not enough good saudi startups and good entrepreneurs in which to invest is there a reason why some of these government fund of funds and other funds that are active in saudi arabia are sitting on their money it's not really clear from this article but what we saw was sort of a hiccup. And now I guess what we're seeing is sort of a, a correction and a, a throttle back to match what's happening globally in VC, which is basically just a much larger version of this, which is a ton of dry powder out there, not a lot of new investments. Richard are quoted today on the, uh, the review was exactly. about how AI was not even close to making up for all of the other VCs that are just not investing right now. So, yeah, Saudi Arabia needs this to pick up, and it's not happening right now. It's still sort of where hovering around a, a very nascent space. So this needs to this needs to accelerate. Yeah, I feel like we have kept tabs on this, and it's and I feel like it's a moment and 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 that there's a reassessment in terms of sectors that are coming, and and maybe there's a a, a lack of opportunities. But um, you know, as you referenced in the the Sustig review today, the quoted, you know took data from Crunchbase and, you know, global venture funding overall globally is is down 18% in the second quarter of 2023. I mean, AI is pumping, but overall it's down 18% because as you mentioned, it does mirror, Saudi Arabia does mirror it. Late stage funding globally is the lowest since it's been 2018. That's less impactful in Saudi Arabia because you're looking at different levels, but this is down everywhere. And I think there's also, we'll, we'll see, we don't know. I also, as I said, I think there's a bit of a reckoning going on in Saudi Arabia and a reassessment of, of, 
of, you know, have we saturated what we've been investing in? What's the next thing? Who's going to be investable in the next thing? Uh, so we'll keep watching it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, too, because you have a lot of these funds are still fundraising. They're not fundraising necessarily only in the U.S., but they're traveling around the world to fundraise. And so they're raising funds for their next fund. And meanwhile, they're sitting on right. their current fund, which is just dry powder, and they're not putting it into companies. So at some point, they have to invest the money before the fund term expires. So it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think that in the coming year or two, there's going to be a blitz of investment. Yeah. And I wonder if that's the case in Saudi Arabia or if, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia will be just a little bit behind that curve, but then we'll get there. But there is money to invest in Saudi Arabia. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. The larger ecosystem, the, the global VC scene, you know, there should be major investments coming in, if not later this year, start of 2024, which is what Iyad Albayuk sort of indicated. Um, but yeah, late stage funding rounds are way down in the US, especially because people are not really sure about the IPO market for some of these startups. So interesting, interesting times. Um, Saudi Arabia was bucking the trend for a while, and now it seems to be catching up to them. Absolutely. So Richard, good one this week. Um, really great conversation. Thank you to Dana for joining us, giving us her time. That was awesome. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners and viewers are going to love that. Just, just a great episode. And really enjoyed it. She's terrific. And I always enjoy these. These are awesome. These are great. Happy belated 4th of July to you, Richard. Exactly. Weirdness on Tuesday, but it was nice. Yeah. It made for some weird fireworks timing. A lot of fireworks were on Saturday, which was weird to me because it's not the 4th. It was the 1st or whatever. So um, we, we got together with, with uh, friends and... You know, everyone sort of realized, oh, the fireworks were this weekend. And yeah, it was just odd. Let's, yeah. let's not do 4th of July on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yes, agreed. Richard, see you next week. Thank <laughs> <All> you. <right. laughs> see you. Thanks. <laughs>